streamlined design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. Today, we continue our exploration of the business of the political universe. We've looked at candidates, the national party, the conventions, and the life of the political operative. Today, we accept that all politics are local, and we look at how the state political parties operate. Our guest today has run everything from student campaigns to national advocacy organizations. He played a role in getting our past guest, Al Franken, sued by Fox News in 2003 for the book Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them, A Fair and Balanced Look at the Right. And he now serves as the chair of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. Ben Wickler, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ted. It's great to be with you. So every, uh, every hero has an origin story, Ben. Where does your story start? Uh, I don't know about the hero part, but uh, like every, every person, I have an origin story, and my origin is right here in Wisconsin. Um, I actually grew up in the house where I'm joining you from right now. And Wisconsin is a state with this very rich, progressive political tradition that's kind of intertwined with other, uh, other shades of the political spectrum. It's the state of Joe McCarthy, as well as being the state of fighting Bob LaFollette. It's the state with some of the biggest racial disparities in the country, as well as uh, one of the states that fought the hardest in the Civil War. Uh, so there's a lot, to, a lot to say about Wisconsin history, but I grew up hearing about the, the good parts and the you know, the, the energy of the progressive movement, the first state to ratify the right to vote for women, the first state to have kindergarten for kids, uh, first state with public sector unions. And I got involved in my first campaign when I was 11 years old. My godmother, a woman named Ada Deer, became the first American Indian woman to win a congressional primary. Uh, she was the, the leader of the Menominee tribe. And I still remember the night she won her primary. Her speech began, I've been waiting a long time to say this, me nominee. <laughs> and that became the headline of the paper the next day uh, and stuck with me. Uh, my other uh, kind of track in life has been political satire. So I found, I found this to be wonderful at all levels. Uh, and I kind of got, caught the bug, have been involved in, in campaigns and activism and uh, progressive kind of media operations for my whole life and moved home with my wife and three kids in 2018 and uh, was elected state party chair in 2019. And here I am. It's it's amazing to me that you you have this connection to Menominee County because if if a person were to look at an at a map of results of the last couple presidential elections in Wisconsin, you would come away with the the feeling that but for Dane County, Milwaukee County, and Menominee County, Wisconsin votes somewhere to the right of Attila the Hun. But that's not really true. Most most of the counties in Wisconsin are are typically within about ten percent of being evenly split. But, you know, for those that aren't, there are far more solid red counties than solid blue counties. That makes for an interesting competitive environment for a state party. Absolutely. So Wisconsin, it's kind of like a fractal where if you zoom in, it's a it's a miniaturized version that comes down to a very local level of what you see across the country. Uh, there are. There are blue cities, there are red rural areas, and then you, you zoom in on a rural county, you'll see that the 2,500 person town has a whole bunch of Democrats living there and the, the more rural areas are often you know, 70, 80% Republican. But there are Democrats everywhere. 
And what's so striking to me as a state party chair traveling around the state, working with local county parties and activists around the state is that you have to actually work and organize in every square inch of the state to be able to win. It's the most closely divided state in the country. Four out of the last six presidential elections here have come down to less than one percentage point. Uh, there's no other state that's even had three. So you, you have to look for votes everywhere you can find them. You can't write anybody off or take anyone for granted in Wisconsin. And Menominee County, uh, as you noted, it's actually had the biggest uh, swing and the biggest jump in Democratic turnout and, and Democratic vote share in 2020 compared to 2016 of any county in the state. Uh, the, the Menominee Nation really mobilized and, and folks turned out. And it was part of this picture where uh, Despite a surge in Trump votes, Democratic votes surged even more, and we won by 20,621 votes out of 3.28 million votes cast in our state. Before the, the show started, we were we were just making small talk, and we were talking about the, the similarities and emerging dissimilarities between Wisconsin and its neighbor state, Minnesota, that, that it has the same, the same type of rural, urban uh, 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 splits. It has the same type of population concentrations, but but Democratic state parties in the two states have had very different results over the last decade or so, and 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 that that points to some some trends and some indicators. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. So if you go back to 2009, let's say Wisconsin and Minnesota looked very similar politically, and then in 2010 there was the Tea Party wave. And in Wisconsin, the, everyone from the, the you know, Republican and far-right grassroots to Scott Walker and Ron Johnson, they were all operating in tremendous unity. There was a massive Koch Brothers-funded operation. There's been movies about it, the, the work that they did here in Wisconsin. And uh, the you know, Democrats, tons of folks were working incredibly hard, but Democratic turnout was low that year. And Republicans flipped Wisconsin from being a blue trifecta with a Democratic governor and two Democratic uh, chambers in the state legislature to a red trifecta, where Republicans controlled everything. Minnesota, the Democratic gubernatorial candidate, after a massive, tremendous uh, campaign effort, working in uh, very effective concert, you know, uh, within legal lines with independent side groups, with labor unions, with uh, you know, farmers groups, the Democrats were able to win the governor's race by about 6,000 votes. And that made all the difference. Because after that, the, the new district maps were drawn. And in Wisconsin, Republicans gerrymandered the living daylights out of Wisconsin so that uh, Democrats a couple of times have won clear majorities in the state in the uh, of the overall vote for state legislature. And Republicans have gotten away with close to super majorities in the number of seats. In Minnesota, a Democratic governor was there so Republicans couldn't run the table on redistricting. Minnesota made it easier to vote. Wisconsin made it harder to vote. Uh, Minnesota started, you know, reducing the the kind of misbegotten war on crime. Incarcerated populations started dropping. In Wisconsin, Scott Walker led a ton of of scapegoating and started, you know, massively increasing incarceration rates, which uh, incidentally have the effect of making it uh, impossible for folks that are incarcerated or on papers to vote. Wisconsinites. Um, suddenly had onerous restrictions on being able to register to vote. Um, organized labor was attacked and smashed by by Scott Walker and Republicans. So the kind of structural factors that make it uh, make a democracy thrive and that allow Democrats to compete on an even playing field were trashed by the GOP intentionally. And the result was in Minnesota, where both the state kind of trended blue and indicators across the state were really strong, and in Wisconsin, where public institutions 
higher education were systematically defunded other than the prison system under Scott Walker. And things got pretty dire up until 2018. In that year, finally, Democrats started roaring back thanks to work you know, that was laid for years by a lot of folks. And uh, we've won now 10 out of the last 11 statewide elections in the state of Wisconsin. And you know, I would say things are looking up. Uh, but we had eight long years of Minnesota uh, really kind of running laps around Wisconsin on, on a lot of the things that I care about. Those are painful to see, and I'm glad we're back in convention now. It, it feels like the combination starting in 2010, you look at Citizens United and, and, and the right of corporations to funnel unlimited dollars into political campaigns under the guise of speech, and the, the systematic focus against public unions that, that really after 2010 had its birthplace and focal point in Wisconsin. And, and you have to think that at that point, the state GOP was, was sort of working toward a goal. And, and the goal I think would be get as much corporate money into the system and as much labor money out of the system as humanly possible. And let's do it very quickly. That's exactly right. Uh, Scott Walker actually changed our campaign finance laws so that individual donors could give unlimited amounts to state parties, and then state parties could transfer unlimited amounts to state candidates. And it just happens that uh, you know two of the five biggest Republican donors in the country are Wisconsin uh, billionaires, and have given this. Uh, there's three people, a couple and one one woman, who've given eighty eight million dollars to Republican candidates over the last election cycle. Uh, that's national as well as, as state candidates. Uh, there's just a, a ton of kind of Republican wealthier and corporate money that flows through a network of super PAC operations, thanks to Citizens United, that are often the biggest spenders in a given state legislative race or statewide race. Now, that, that lattice of systems really helped Republicans up until 2018 and now 2020. And uh, over these last couple election cycles, we have dramatically increased our kind of fundraising prowess and tapped folks across the country because Wisconsin is now rightly seen as so pivotal in elections that you know, people from uh, from other states around the country are chipping in to support Wisconsin Democrats, as well as folks really stepping up to the plate in state. So we've now erased that Republican fundraising advantage. But for a while, it was like the system was engineered specifically to to benefit from Republican special interest donors and the, the folks who benefit most from Republican driven tax cuts, uh, you know, for, for those at the top. And the result was was really punishing in terms of electoral outcomes. Well, I will, I will say this as a former resident of the state of Pennsylvania, uh, welcome to being a swing state. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, this is a state where everyone knows there's an election because by election day, every ad is a political ad. Right. In the gamut of politics from Door County dog catcher all the way up to president of the United States, what is the state party responsible for doing? So uh, I love that you mentioned Door County. Door County is one of two counties, just two in the state that flipped from 2016 to 2020. Door County is now proudly a blue county. Uh, we also won a really hard fought special election for state Senate uh, in, in Door County, although that then flipped back in the, in the general election. Um, so what's interesting is the structure of the Democratic Party um, is built around the way that kind of uh, campaign finance laws are administered. So we have a national party, but the national party doesn't actually have staff for the most part in states around the country. They have partnerships with state parties. State parties can receive transfers and then we bring people onto our team. The state parties typically 
um, have the professional staff. Those, there's often a really big boom and bust cycle, although we've been trying to fight that. We now have a significant kind of off-year presence. We have organizers in every region of the state uh, who are you know, professionals who work with our state party, folks on our comms team and digital team. Uh, but those staff work for state parties. And then there's county parties that are usually, there's some exceptions in some states, but they're all volunteer. So a county party will elect a county party chair, a whole executive team. Typically for local offices, the county party leads the way on recruiting and supporting candidates. In Wisconsin, unlike Minnesota, the state party and our county parties are generally required to be neutral if there's a primary. So if there's multiple candidates, uh, then we step back and wait for, for uh, to find out who comes out of the primary process. But the state party and the county parties work together to actually get volunteers on the ground talking to people. And in Wisconsin, the way we do that is through a system of neighborhood teams. It's the neighbor to neighbor model that the Obama campaign pioneered in 2008. Some counties, the neighborhood team is the county party. Other counties, especially larger ones, you'll have dozens of, county, of, of neighborhood teams, you know, dotting the, dotting the, the cityscape, uh, taking on different turf. Those neighborhood teams here, they operate year-round, they talk to their neighbors, they go door to door canvassing, they do virtual phone banks and text banks, and actually build long-term relationships with voters so that when it comes time to actually elect somebody, they can just remind people of things they've already been talking about for months, as opposed to trying to convince them of something new. So if you have a well-functioning uh, kind of state political operation, you'll have, ton you'll have thousands of volunteers across the state those folks will be connected to local teams and the county parties. The county parties will have a good relationship with the state party. The state party will have a good relationship to the national party. And at every level, you want to have folks that have you know, positive relationships with the with uh, organized uh, labor unions and with grassroots independent organizations. Uh, there's a lot of conversations we're not allowed to have as you get close to an election, but you want everyone to have a sense that we're on the same team and not, uh, you know, not trying to go after each other uh, in public or private, uh, because it really has to be a, a movement that's more than the sum of its parts. And that's what you see in, in the states that are, I think are functioning most effectively. Um, Often when Democrats lose over and over, people start blaming each other. People try to get each other's organizations defunded because they you know, think the other group isn't doing it right. Um, when people are, are working in harmony, you can actually add up to something that's really effective. No, no one does the circular firing squad better than Democrats. I, 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 give, I give Democrats credit for that. And that's what I thought until Trump lost. And now, man, are Republicans eating their own? It's just amazing. Well, okay, let's let's dive into this. How are they eating their own if many of them believe that he didn't lose? Well, they're purging the ones who think that he did lose. Right. Uh, you know, Liz Cheney getting thrown out of the number three spot in House leadership. Yeah. Uh, we have you know former Republican county party chairs are calling us and saying they're so disgusted with the party they want to give up on it. And if they say anything publicly, they get absolutely squashed on social media. It's just it's astonishing to watch the you know, it really is like Republicans have grabbed the mantle from Democrats for the ability to be in total disarray. And uh, as Democrats, you know, we're, we're kind of working together right now. See, and, and, and I, I've always, I, I could be wrong here. I've, I've attributed the, this phenomenon on the Republican side to just an overwhelming cognitive dissonance. Whereas with Democrats, I just thought it, we, we get cranky and I could <laughs> be wrong, but, but, uh, but you would know better. I think, the Republican strategy has been premised on everyone agreeing to swallow a bunch of baloney. And for those that have spit up the baloney, it's very hard to stomach being in the same team with the, with the other folks and vice versa. So right. I do think cognitive dis dissonance is playing a, a really big role there. Um, you know, for Democrats, 
there's some ingrained habits of, of independent thought that, uh, you know, can be challenging from an organizing perspective, but I think actually help, help to push us to be a party that doesn't put its whole uh, political strategy uh, on top of a foundation that crumbles on the slightest close examination. Well, this, this makes me believe strongly that I need to get a behavioral psychologist in for an episode in the future to talk about the difference between progressive and conservative thought patterns. But, but you mentioned something that I want to explore a little bit. You talked about how there comes a point in every election cycle where, there, where the party can't coordinate with certain entities, and that's because of the prohibition on coordinating with a, can, with a candidate campaign, right? Yeah, so the party can fully coordinate with candidates. The party and the candidates are essentially the same. There's actually something called the coordinated campaign, where all the each each candidate's campaign has a representative sits around a coordinated table, and we hammer through. You know, when you knock on a door, whose name do you mention first? Uh, what is the you know which photos are going to be on the door hanger we put on voters' doors when we when we you know travel the countryside? Um, all that happens on what's called the hard side, which is contributions that are made in hard political dollars, they're not tax exempt. Uh, but then there's other organizations that are on the independent side, and uh, you hear the term soft money. Um, the soft money organizations can range from um, uh, you know, groups that are running uh, ads that say vote against or vote for this candidate, um, to you know, there's also non-political groups that are just trying to turn voters out. They're, we're not allowed to talk to a nonpartisan organization that's just trying to you know, maximize participation in an election. They're not advocating for or against any particular candidate. And so uh, there's almost like, you know, in, in politics, you have to start with, so what kind of entity do you work for? Do you work right. for a C3 tax exempt charity? Do you work for a C4 issue advocacy organization? Do you work for a 527, uh, you know, uh, super PAC organization? And then uh, sometimes I, I remember... Years ago, I worked for an organization called MoveOn.org, which is an advocacy group. And I went to a meeting, and the meeting started with a lawyer saying, we're going to be discussing coordinated activity. So anyone who's on the independent side, please leave now. And I had to stand up and walk out of the room before the meeting could continue, yes. uh, which, you know, that's the, the right way to do it. But that's the, those are the rules that folks in the political arena uh, have to build their lives around. Yes, I, I was on the board of directors of a, a very large political action committee that also had, had a... One of there was a staff member who was formerly with that pack who worked in an office on the other side of a vacant off floor of an office building specifically to have physical separation because the five the soft arm couldn't talk to the hard arm. Yep, it's called the firewall. Yeah, uh, and yeah, you always if you work in an organization, you always have to decide which side of the firewall you want to work on. Do you want to work on the small side where you get to make bigger decisions, but you can't talk to your colleagues for six months? Or do you want to talk work on the, uh, you know, whichever side most of the folks are on? Right. Um, at the party, you know, it's all coordinated with, we are the actual party. We work with the candidates. Um, and that's, you know, there's no restrictions on what we're allowed to say. Um, we're, you know, we say, go vote for Joe Biden. Uh, we don't have to mince any, any words about it. It's very clear. Right. And on the soft side, it's vote to preserve our schools and, and you just stop. So we're talking with state. Uh, we're talking about state political parties with Ben Wickler, chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. Ben, people, retail consumers of politics, the, the electorate has a general sense of when election season is, and that often coincides with when primary commercials start. What does the party do outside of what the average person would call election season? So here in Wisconsin, 
we no longer believe in in off years and on years or election seasons and non-election seasons. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. At one level, Wisconsin has elections all the time. There's every four years, there's one 10 month period without an election. Uh, that's the longest window with no election. So we're in that period right now. The next election is going to be the February primary for the spring 2020 local nonpartisan elections, um, which will be things like county board officers across the state, mayor's races. Uh, so we are you know, actively planning out and thinking about how we can support local you know, mayoral candidates who, who share our values right now. Uh, but the big marquee elections for Congress and for, uh, for president, those are elections where the groundwork has to be laid in advance too. So what we're doing at the state party, our organizers are working with local neighbor team leaders, neighbor, uh, neighborhood team leaders to help train them on recruiting volunteers from their, you know, their friends and families and coworkers. And this summer, this fall, those teams will be going out and talking to voters who we haven't knocked on the door since uh, the pandemic started and having conversations to find out what they're thinking. Have they uh, taken a, a shine to Joe Biden? Do, do, are they absolutely never going to vote for a Democrat in their lives? That kind of information becomes critical when you get closer to an election. Because if you're a Democrat, you want to use all of your time and energy to mobilize people who are going to vote for Democrats. It's the Republicans' job to turn out their voters. So we want to know in advance, you know, is this somebody who might be on the fence and it's worth taking some time to talk to them? Is this someone who is 100% going to vote for Republican every single time? Um, we don't want to ask them that question the day before the election, because um, then we've used up the time to talk to a voter on, on you know, turning out a voter for the other side. So that early off-year work makes a critical difference. There's also a ton of work that happens through the legislative caucuses, for example, to recruit candidates. Uh, there are 99 assembly districts in Wisconsin. It's good for us to have candidates in as many of them as possible. Uh, there are campaign finance uh, you know, procedures where you, you get um, you know, reporting and you have to go over the books over and over. And all these different things that kind of administratively have to happen between elections. Um, and then there's communication. So I would say organizing and communicating are, are the, the two biggest election winning things that we do. Uh, we actually started this year with the first general uh, kind of 2022 TV ad in the country about Ron Johnson, our, our U.S. Senator, and his kind of blowing off the insurrection where people stormed the Capitol, including you know his own U.S. Senate chamber. He from the moment that insurrection started, has been talking down the threat. He actually said he was not afraid, but he would have been if it had been Black Lives Matter protesters. So we ran a TV ad across the state of Wisconsin to make sure folks knew. Because um, in politics, it's hard to convince someone of something. It is, anyone who's ever had, tried to have an argument on Facebook to convince someone uh, knows this intuitively. But you can remind people of things they already know. And so when there's not an election nearby, we want to help people learn stuff so that we can remind them about it when the election gets close. And that's a lot of what the communications operation of a state party is when there's not an election anywhere near in sight. It's to create a, a, you know, a set of facts that folks can actually draw from when the election does arrive. You mentioned Ron Johnson, and, and in terms of persuasion around an issue, there was a moment in his campaign in 2010 um, when he was challenging Russ Feingold and in a debate, <clears throat> Ron Johnson said the federal government has never created a job. And I didn't think much of it at the time, but uh, a, a few weeks later after the election and, and, and Johnson won um, our, our mutual person, former Senator Al Franken, who was then Senator Al Franken was speaking at an event in, in Minnesota. And he talked about that issue and said, you know, well, 
how about the interstate trucking industry? How about the internet? You know, the, the government may not have created every single job, but it created the infrastructure that led to these two huge and crucially important industries. And, you know, I suspect that there are a few truckers in Minnesota who might have responded favorably to that. And so a lot of it is messaging. How, how does the party help define messaging in such a way that, you know, the candidates can perhaps finally speak coherently about something that resonates and that gets past kind of the, the typical, well, the government never created a job. It's, it's such a great question. And it's something that I think people have a lot of misconceptions about. Sometimes there's this idea that the party can, uh, you know, if it says the talks about opportunity everywhere, everyone will know that that's what Democrats stand for. And you can address the, the brand problem that Democrats might have in a particular community. Um, the reality is we do play a critical role in messaging, but we're in a landscape where there's a lot of people on both sides trying to define both sides. So what the party can do is it can help uh, generate research and polling. It can do message training, it can do guides. It can have, uh, we have uh, you know an email we send out to all of our party members across the state every week. We, give, we provide talking points to local activists. Uh, we work with our, our candidates to help them shape messages. And uh, our candidates and elected officials are typically the most powerful messengers in terms of being able to reach out to their constituents. And at the same time, a lot of Republicans get their news about Democrats, not from Democrats, but from Fox News Channel and from you know, right-wing talk radio and from Ben Shapiro memes on Facebook. And uh, whatever we say, those folks are gonna come up with the things that, that they have to say about Democrats and then you'll knock on a Republican's door and you'll hear Ben Shapiro talking to you instead of the person who's right in front of you. So uh, there is a, I have learned some humility about our ability to exactly define ourselves, but that is not to say that there aren't critical things we can do because, you know, when people hear what Republicans have to say, then, and then a Democrat knocks on the door, what the Democrat then says really does matter. And I think part of what we, we do at the party is we try to help people, you know, navigate really thorny issues and situations and also put front and center the things that make us Democrats. And I'll say, you know, right now, we have a president in Joe Biden, we have a governor in Tony Evers, who are working to help build back better. Our governor's uh, program is called the Badger Bounce Back. And that means no matter where you live, no matter if your skin is white, black, or brown, we all know we want our kids to be able to go to school and have a great education. We want to have a family supporting job. Um, those are things Democrats stand for and fight for in every community. And Republicans keep trying to change the subject, talk about something else, because the core Democratic messages and issues resonate across all communities and helping Democrats to stay grounded in that reality and the strength of that message is I think a really key part of what a party can do. Okay. Well, we're talking with Ben Wickler, chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party, Go Badgers. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're going to take a short break for some messages for our sponsors. Stick around and we'll be right back, including with questions from the Facebook Live audience. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at Voice AM Business. Again, that's at Voice AM Business. And stay current. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. 
We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're talking state politics with Ben Wickler, chair of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. And Ben, a question from Michael in Madison, Wisconsin. What are your views on Senator Johnson's chances for a re-election? So it's interesting. You know, Ron Johnson is the only incumbent senator in the country that the Cook Political Report, which is the kind of gold standard uh, political prognostication firm, He's the only incumbent Republican they rate as a toss-up, and uh, and there's no, you know mostly incumbent senators get reelected. So you have to start with the presumption that if someone's been elected twice, they are a strong favorite to get reelected. He has been weakened by a kind, I think a combination of the terrible things he's saying and doing, and the fact that Democrats are very effectively making sure people find out about those things. Uh, there's you know. One way to look at Johnson is that he's been saying and doing these outrageous things for a long time, but he's done it under the radar until fairly recently. Uh, he you know, voted for Trump's tax cut. He was the tie-breaking vote for that. And then he voted against COVID relief for families. He threw himself in front of the, the American Rescue Plan and tried to block it, force the entire bill to be read to just add 24 hours before people could start getting their, their stimulus checks processed. He's been spreading anti-vaccine COVID disinformation. He's been talking down the seriousness of the insurrection over and over. I mean, just across the board. And for all right. of this, and for all of this, it's a toss-up. <laughs> exactly right so here's the thing it is it is a it's a train wreck but there's a theory behind it and i think we should we do ourselves a disservice if we don't recognize the strategy he's employing um, johnson is famously very proud that he until recently was the record holder for the number of votes that a republican could get in wisconsin and then someone beat his record and that person was donald trump in 2020 mm -hmm. so he looked at the trump 
electorate. And he said, you know, this is a guy who was elected after pushing hydroxychloroquine long after it had been debunked uh, as the pandemic raged across the state. He appealed to racial division and uh, fear and conspiracies and, you know, blew a whole bunch of smoke. And he got more votes than anyone, any Republican ever has. And I want those voters. And he's making a calculated bet that he can, you know, provoke media into attacking him and turn himself into a martyr, that he can appeal to, to you know, folks who may not normally vote, but find him to be you know, entertaining and extreme. And the bet is premised on his own personal electoral history. He won in 2010 on the Tea Party wave, and he won in 2016 on the Trump wave. And he's betting there will be another wave that can carry him over the finish line in 2022. And for Democrats, you know, I certainly hope there's not a red tide in 2022, but we essentially have to prepare as though there will be a wave of Republican voters turning out and we need to build an even bigger blue wave to beat it. And that's the kind of premise of, of my strategy. I think it is a toss up, even though I think he's you know, eminently disqualified himself from holding public office. Uh, we're treating this like it's even until we see the final results. And this comes back to being in touch with your voters uh, and, and what you do to build the the platform once once the campaigns get up and running, it, I think it would be easy to write Ron Johnson off as having ridden a crackpot wave into in 2010, a crackpot wave in 2016. But uh, th- that that doesn't account for the fact that voters are responding to something. There's something about him. There's something about what he's saying that is responding to and touching a need on the part of that electorate that sent him there twice. And and I, I it, it seems folly to to simply write it off as well. It was Donald Trump, and he doesn't have anybody at the top of the ticket, so he's in real trouble this time. Yeah, you just can't do that, especially in Wisconsin. I mean, yeah, we've had these incredibly close presidential races, but we also had one of the closest governors' races in the country in uh, twenty eighteen, one point one percentage points. Twenty nineteen, we had a state supreme court race that came down to zero point four percentage points in a statewide election. Just over and over, there are these nail biters, and they're. It's just clearly our voters uh, who have wildly different views about what government should be for and uh, different things they're willing to believe about what the other side stands for. And we know that the kind of Republican media echo chamber ecosystem is, is very powerful. So even though, you know, to me, Ron Johnson is uh, completely you know, disqualified himself, I know there's other folks who uh, are seeing a whole bunch of COVID disinformation and Ron Johnson's the only person who's talking sense about it. Uh, when he says he's raising questions about side effects and so forth. Uh, I think Wisconsin vividly reminds people who work in politics every day that there are a whole lot of people with a whole lot of different beliefs. And you have to you have to organize in a way that reflects that and, and kind of honors that fact. Uh, there were polls that had Trump down 10 points in Wisconsin, 11 points going into election day. And those, those were so far off the mark that even if polls start saying Johnson is you know, way underwater, you still shouldn't count the guy out. And why are those polls so bad, even after the lessons learned in 2016? Is it because they're, they're undercapturing likely voters? Is it because their demographic mix is off? What's causing such bad estimation of, of what actually happens? Because this seems to be a fairly new disparity. So here's the, the best analysis that I've seen. Um, and it's, it's pretty striking. Historically, one thing that predicts whether you'll answer a poll is your level of social trust, whether you think that polls, for example, are, uh, are fake news. And historically, the level of social trust didn't vary so much by party. 
Now it's different. Trump, uh, I think, has both played a role and ridden a wave of increased social distrust among Republicans. And so there's a ton of Republicans now who just won't answer calls from pollsters. They won't answer online polls. They won't answer newspaper polls. They won't answer partisan polls. They won't answer text-to-web polls. They, any kind of measuring instrument you might use, if people are suspicious of the institution of polling itself, um, and then they just won't answer the polls, uh, it's impossible to wait for the people who won't answer. You can only, you know, look at, you can, You have to kind of, if, if the level of social distrust doesn't uh, correlate with any other particular factor, then you can't correct for it in statistical weighting. And so it winds up being a, a thorny uh, kind of mathematical problem. But the result is that polls just aren't capturing a slice of Republicans in a way that doesn't vary just across education level or, you know, uh, geography where people live. And in 2020, this was particularly pronounced in Wisconsin because Wisconsin has same-day voter registration. So you actually have to predict that a bunch of people will same-day register who are not even registered voters in advance. And in 2020, same-day registrants on election day were overwhelmingly Republicans. So there were a ton of people that came out of the woodwork that hadn't been in any polls who were more likely to not answer even if someone did try to pull them. Um, same-day registration is still on the books. And so we have to expect a similar kind of thing in 2022. It's interesting that same-day registration survived um, the period from 2010 to 2018 because that is generally a type of access to the polls that that the Republicans have tried to systematically eliminate. But in Wisconsin, it seems to work in their favor. Well, historically, it's been roughly evenly split, which I think is the main reason why Republicans didn't um, have enough energy to overcome people's uh, how much people like it. The other thing is that it is such a Wisconsin institution now that you can show up and you can you know fix your address by re-registering on election day that people in, in both parties really like it. It's very popular. It's hard to take something like that away. What they did do was they made it harder to same day register or to register in general. Um, you have to bring your utility bill and a separate photo ID. You have to bring essentially you know two different things, two different data points that you can cross-reference. Um, it used to be that you could have a, a neighbor witness the fact that you're actually the person you're saying you were, uh, you know, if you go back some years. So they raised the bar, but the fact of same-day voter registration didn't go away. And what's striking about 2020, uh, absentee voting became a tremendous asset for Democrats. As COVID fears rose, Democrats got more and more concerned about voting in person. Um, I think probably 85% of our voters, of Biden voters in Wisconsin voted before election day. Um, and Republicans, accordingly, have been doing everything they can to go after you know, drop boxes and, and, and mail-in voting. But same-day registration for folks that were less concerned about COVID became a huge boon, and that wound up being a huge uh, you know, windfall for Republicans. So same-day voter registration is not on any Republican's list of, of voter freedoms to clamp down on. Um, whereas, you know, in a slightly different storyline, Republicans would see that as the way that Democrats were getting an advantage and would be attacking it right now. And and to take this back to the results in the 2020 election in, in Wisconsin, so we go back to this narrative of the press is the enemy, the press is the enemy, the press is the enemy, which served a very specific purpose, was to which was to get a, a, a particular part of the base to simply not trust the media. And and that translates into the media wants to, wants me to participate in a poll. I don't trust them. I'm not going to participate in the poll, which creates the unfixable sampling error. And, That's right. and, and, and so a bunch of people who weren't polled at all 
show up and and all of a sudden Nate Silver is being yelled at by pretty much everyone. That's right. That's the loop that we're in. And it created a world where events that happen and are reported by the media stop having an impact on Republican voters because they don't trust the very place that carries them that information. And right. so it created this kind of uh, protective shell around around Trump and a lot of Republicans, including Ron Johnson, that I think he's counting on now. He actually wears attacks as he sees it by the media that you know debunk his lies um, as a badge of honor. And that's part of his electoral strategy. It's not just something that, that alienates uh, you know, voters like you and me. And they can do this because you know on on the right there is a pretty remarkably well-funded media machine and and on the left that just ha- there isn't an international billionaire who's been willing to lose money for 15 years to to establish the foundation for a global media dominance like the murdochs were willing to do with fox news um, you know, Al Gore tried and and couldn't and sold his network to Al Jazeera, which I'm sure played great. Um, it, but but efforts efforts to create kind of a, a a media machine on the progressive side of analysis just haven't worked particularly well in that sense. There's you know you have choices and people make choices and 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 more often than not they get drowned out by the one consistent message on the other side. So how do you deal with this? Uh, well, you're exactly right. I appreciate you pointing it out because it's something that's often, it's almost like, you know, it's the landscape we live on and it's, it's the water we swim in. So people forget to point out that we're fish swimming in water. Uh, we live in a, a country that's been shaped by, you know, massive nine, 10 figure investments in creating a media ecosystem that echoes right-wing ideas. And it's both the massive Murdoch operation, but now it's Sinclair Broadcasting Group. I think it's the single biggest owner of local television stations. And they put editorial content in across Wisconsin. I can always tell when I'm talking to a Sinclair station um, that becomes part of the nightly newscast. Uh, it's also right-wing talk radio, which is a, a massive force. I have been sort of obsessed with this issue. My first job out of college was working for Air America Radio, which was an attempt to create an antidote to the right-wing dominance of talk radio. Um, the Al Franken Show, which I uh, produced as my first job, had really strong ratings. Uh, but the, you know, the level of investment you need over time to make a business model like that work just wasn't there on the Democratic side. And so it wound up falling apart. Uh, there are some kind of new innovations. I think that podcasts, which have very low overhead costs and live streams, uh, you know, uh, these are our channels that folks like Pod Save America are using effectively to communicate in a way, um, you know, they're committed to truth. They, they have a, a whole different kind of ethic about how they do it, but in a way that's similar to the willingness to preach to the converted, because often, uh, you know, if you preach to the choir, people walking along the sidewalk hear the choir singing. They don't hear the preacher preaching. And so preaching to the choir can actually, if you have millions of people who are helping carry a message, uh, that can actually reach a lot more people. Um, I think there are efforts like that to try to, to try to move the needle. But if you're the, the state party in a state like Wisconsin, you have to constantly identify ways that you can cut through the noise machine. And that can include folks, you know, knocking on door year round, you know, rain, sleet and snow. Um, it can include setting up networks uh, to, to make sure people are, posting accurate, useful information on local Facebook feeds across the state, providing templates and graphics so that people can learn about how successful our COVID vaccination rollout has been, for example, uh, thanks to Governor Evers. And it's constantly takes 
you know, looking at where people are getting their news and trying to get ahead of the curve to, to actually reach people where they are, as opposed to hoping that they're going to come to your website. Because um, frankly, no one's going to state party websites to learn about, you know, where each party stands on issues. You have to go, it's, it's Ariel from Little Mermaid. I want to be where the people are. You have to find where their eyeballs are and, and go to them. At that point, once you've identified them, does it become a battle of volume? Does it become a battle of quantity? Or is it just trying to, to, to build resonance for, for the values and the message you're trying to communicate? So good messages travel. Um, one of the ways you can kind of evaluate the success of a message is if people not only agree with it, but they actually remember it and repeat it. And that's a, a critical factor. Now, of course, it takes repetition for someone to hear something before it can really catch on. But you can often tell when a message has legs, when it's something that people are willing to uh, to pick up and repeat all over the place. So, you know, I know about Build Back Better because uh, it's has alliteration, it's simple, it's direct, uh, but there's lots of people who could tell you Build Back Better. It's a message that uh, Joe Biden used and it actually kind of worked. In 2018, pre-existing conditions for healthcare was the best democratic message. It was, uh, you know, people weren't saying Obamacare at that point. Protection for people with pre-existing conditions is something that everybody either has a pre-existing condition, knows they're going to get one, or love someone who has one. And Republicans were trying to take those protections away. And you could tell, you know, every candidate was talking about them. Voters understood them. Republicans started trying to claim they were the party that wanted to protect people with pre-existing conditions. And Republicans lost on the issue of health care. was their Republicans' central message was they were going to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And then it turned out that the central provision in the Affordable Care Act was incredibly popular. And so that just wound up turning around and, you know, smacking them in the face. Uh, you... You have to, to find something that connects to something that people actually believe in their in their gut to be true, and then makes that the, the central issue in the campaign. And a good issue um, is something that that taps both what people believe about your candidate or party and the other candidate or party. People are are willing to believe because they rightly know that Republicans are willing to rip away protections for pre-existing conditions, and they know that Democrats are the party that has always fought for healthcare for everybody. And so it's a message that actually works, the shoe fits. And often I think people imagine that you can just message your way into convincing someone of, you know, that the world is upside down and it, it doesn't work that way. You have to tap into something that's deep inside of people. Um, and for Democrats, we do that we do that best and most effectively when it's true. Democrats don't like to repeat lies. I think there are some uh, Republican candidates who take a perverse delight out of getting away with saying things that they know aren't true, but it doesn't work that way for Democrats. We fight best with the truth. And so you got to ground something in something that people actually care about that is also true and that um, defines you as the solution to a problem and Republicans as the, the source of the problem itself. You mentioned key resonating themes of a campaign. And if we look at the presidential and, and midterm elections over the last several years, 2016 was email and Benghazi. 2018 was pre-existing conditions. 2020 was, oh my God, not this again. What's the, what do you think the, the big themes in Wisconsin are going to be in 2022 based on where you stand right now? So where I stand right now, I would say it's um, you know, keep moving forward. This is a country that has come out of an incredibly dark, traumatic time. Um, it's a it's a country that's emerging from this horrible pandemic, where you know most people know someone who's died or gotten extremely sick from this this disease. Um, people know people who've been out of work. People now are experiencing grandparents hugging their grandchildren, and you know people getting raises at work for the first time in a long time. And it's 
the job is not yet done. We've got to hold the line and keep moving forward. And it's very clear Republicans just want to move us backward. I think that's really the core of it. And it speaks to a statistic I saw this weekend. We're at a record high for people reporting that they are thriving. Uh, there's this real sense of, of joy, of, of life coming back um, and hopefully coming back better in a way that benefits you know people in the living in the most remote rural parts of our of our state and our country and um, you know uh, white black and brown people alike that addresses some of the the wounds and scars and disparities that we've had for so long but but coming back stronger in a better way i think build back better is actually a good message for the midterms too our, our governor's phrasing is badger bounce back which also has three b's and has a banner really like that uh, and i think for for democrats like tony evers and for whoever's running against ron johnson in the in the general election the theme of like this is working let's do more of it instead of tearing it up as Republicans want to do is, is going to be a pretty powerful message because things are getting better and people feel it in their lives. One of the, one of the things that you ran for, for your position of chair of the, of the democratic party on was boosting field organizing, really focusing on grassroots organizing. What are the biggest changes that have happened during your first term? And now, now a few weeks into your second term in, in those areas, what, 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 what have you done? So the first thing I did was uh, a lot more. Um, I will. I have tremendous gratitude to my predecessor as state party chair. She made this very bold decision to start investing in 2017, not 2018, in hiring organizers and doing this model that had worked incredibly well for Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012, but hadn't been used at scale outside of that, which is building these local teams across the state. And she took tons of incoming for spending money instead of saving it until the you know the, the fall of the election year, uh, spending it on organizers who were you know talking to these neighborhood team captains instead of just calling voters directly. But it turned out that building all these local teams, we have hundreds of them now, uh, that really paid off when you get to the election because suddenly you can engage thousands and thousands and thousands of volunteers way more than you could before. The 2018 uh, midterm election was, I think they talked to like twice as many voters as the 2016 presidential election. And normally the, the arrow goes in the opposite direction. So that happened before I was chair. I came in wanting to put that on rocket fuel. And we started scaling up massively in the summer and the fall of 2019 with our organizing program. Our strategy was to use the spring 2020 Supreme Court election as a dress rehearsal for the fall. So uh, although we don't uh, share field organizer numbers publicly in the midst of an election, so Republicans can't uh, steal our playbook, we had more than 100 organizers for the spring 2020 election in our state. It was a, a bigger footprint organizing-wise than we had in the fall election of 2018. And then COVID hit, and that transformed everything because we'd been totally focused on our most powerful tactic, which was knocking on doors. Suddenly we were a virtual organizing machine. We trained all of our local party units in virtual organizing. We trained our teams in it. We started doing virtual phone banks, text banks, and relational organizing. We added a bunch of technology. We created a, an easier way for folks out of state to be able to lend their efforts and, and talents to support local organizers in Wisconsin. And we won that race by 10 percentage points. It created the New York Times phrase was the pandemic playbook for how to organize in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, that then carried it was spread across the country and carried into the fall. So now as we come out of COVID, we actually have an expanded toolkit. We are, we're going back on doors, but we're keeping all the new things we learned. Um, we now call it the Trident. It's, it's virtual, um, you know, virtual phone making and text making. 
um, and relational organizing where you work through people's social networks in a way that you can track using apps that progressive groups have created and the traditional door knocking, um, you know, door to door through our neighborhood teams, three different prongs of the Trident. And having more ways to talk to voters is always better because some people like talking to folks at the doorstep. Some people will never open the door. Some people like answering the phone. Some people slam it right down. The more ways you have to talk to voters, the better off you are. How does the state, well, all right, let me, how does the state party prepare for the changes that are coming nationwide? There have been new vote layers upon layers of voting restrictions, changes in voting laws. How is, how are state parties responding to partisan changes that affect the electorate? So the most critical thing in Wisconsin is reelecting our Democratic governor because the Republican strategy of restricting the right to vote, it's, it's something Republicans can't pass national laws. They, you know, Democrats control our national government right now. It's a state-by-state -state strategy. And Republicans have the, the power in states uh, to almost add up to an electoral college majority to restrict the vote. They've got all the red states. And then they've got Georgia and Arizona, which both went blue in 2020. But Republicans have total control in those states of state government. In Wisconsin, which is the last state Republicans would have to add to get to an electoral college majority, we have a Democratic governor. So our governor can and will veto Republican voter suppression bills that are passed by our legislature. It's the last line of defense for our democracy. So for us, that means going big on reelecting Governor Tony Evers. Uh, federal laws, it looks like, aren't, aren't changing anytime soon. If they do change, it'll be in a helpful direction. But we have to hold the line in these state laws to prevent Republican restrictions from voting from going through. Uh, we are all in for Tony is our hashtag, all in for Tony Evers, our governor. Um, that might not be an election that the rest of the nation is as yet transfixed on, uh, but for us, it's it's for all the marbles. And alongside beating Ron Johnson, uh, it's for us, our number one priority is Tony Evers' re-election. We're running out of time, so uh, I'm going to end with one little fun story. Uh, the Manaqua Brewing Company in Manaqua, Wisconsin, got fed up. It's a restaurant that's also now a political action committee, and they're going after Ron Johnson and a local state legislator. Is that it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the Manaqua Brewing Company Super PAC, uh, which, you know, as an independent expenditure organization, I can't seek to, uh, you know, influence their, how they expend their resources, but I can watch their public communications, and I'm delighted to see they are just going after the GOP. They had uh, very strong pro-COVID, you know, uh, COVID control policies during the election. They went after Trump. They're going after Johnson now. And they're part of this kind of energy bubbling up across the state, which you often don't see on the Democratic side in the midterm with a Democratic president. The fact that the Monaco Brewing Company Super PAC is out there um, in a pretty red part of Wisconsin, and the fact that you can see these local grassroots initiatives um, springing up all over Wisconsin from uh, uh, up the uh, Progress North, which is this uh, you know, rural organizing initiative to the heart of Milwaukee, uh, to, to Madison, where I live. Uh, that gives me a lot of energy and a lot of hope as we go into this midterm election for the future of democracy and the future of Wisconsin. Ben, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Ben Wickler is chair of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. He's on Twitter at Ben Wickler. We'll post links to his and the Wisdom's social media on the show's webpage in this episode's show notes. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Kara Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. 
You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.